Now you're all smiling. I'm going to continue talking about fruit, fresh fruit, the kind that uh, is really good for you, the kind that grows from healthy plants, plants that are rooted in good soil, like the, the psalm we said, uh, read earlier today, uh, fruit that is produced by a life led by the Spirit. And uh, what are those? What's, actually, it's one fruit. You know that, right? The fruit of the Spirit is not s- plural. It's singular. There's one fruit. just has lots of different parts. And uh, why don't you read those with me? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness. I, I didn't sing the song in my head. I have to sing the song in my head to get it. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. You don't know that one? Beth knows. You know what I'm talking about, right? I don't know the motions, though. Sorry. If you keep doing that, you're going to be up here next week. You realize that? So. Let's actually read the passage where it comes from. Galatians chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to to. Grab it. It's okay to bring your Bibles to church, I promise. Nobody's going to look at you funny. Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to begin in verse 22. Just stand with me. And uh, so that we can all do this together, why don't you read together with me from the version that's up on the screen, the New Living Translation. Let's read it together. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. Lord, I pray in the next few moments that your Holy Spirit would guide these moments. That uh, we would experience the fullness of your Spirit in our presence. And that it will produce the joy that only comes from you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. What makes you happy? Oh, that was very sweet, Sarah. Sarah just pointed at John. Well, what brings you joy? Uh, you know, for some people, it's, I can tell you, my, my daughter, people bring her joy. It's amazing. She just loves people. She loves people. My son, puzzles bring him joy by himself in a corner. You know, it's, it's cool. Or bugging his sister. You know, that's inbred in us. Uh, you know, the Braves are really bringing me joy, but as we talked about last week, it's agape love, so I love them whether they stink, but they don't stink right now. They've won uh, 10 out of the last 11 after losing the first four, so we're good there. Bring me lots of joy these days. Make my granddad very, very happy. Uh, I'm sure he's shouting in heaven uh, as he's flown away already, uh, looking down and watching the Braves. Uh, but Joy, what makes you happy? I want you to, just for a second, I want you to look to each other, you're somebody you know, somebody around there, and share what makes you happy, what brings you joy. No, do it. Seriously, you can talk. It's okay. Nothing brings you joy. There's like some of you, it's nothing. It's, it's, we're flatlining out there. Nothing makes us happy.
You know what makes me happy? What brings me joy? My own bed. I've realized I've, I'm hitting that age, and I'm only 39, but it's, there's something magical about 39 to 40, that there's no bed like your bed. Even if it's a nice hotel bed, there's no bed like your bed. I, mean, I woke up 12 times two nights ago and was stiff as I could be, uh, picked up Noah, and I'm like, oh, great, I can't do this anymore. Uh, but I, it brings me joy to be in my own bed. Uh, it brings me joy to hang out with people. It brings me joy to, to eat at a good restaurant. It brings me joy to do that. Uh, I'm finding joy in reading. You know, for, that's, that's a long process for me, but it, for me, it's, it's work to, to read. It always has been. And in my academic career, uh, I read to work, and it was, I read some things that people assigned, and I had to do that. And I read uh, here all the time, but I found the joy in reading stuff that nobody said you got to read. Uh, I'm through because we gave up TV for Lent. I was able to read The Hobbit, uh, the first installment of The Lord of the Rings, and now I'm in the two, two towers about halfway, three-quarters of the way through that. And my goal is by uh, we get time to go to Ecuador, I'll be through with it so I can have a movie marathon if you all want to come home. Uh, uh, we'll do the director's cut, so it'll be 12 hours of uninterrupted uh, Lord of the Rings. Some of you just don't care about that, but uh, I'm enjoying that. Joy. But you know, you take away books, you take away a bed, you take away good food, you take away all the comforts of home, you think you take away the Braves, you ta- take away anything that makes us happy, and we can become pretty miserable, can't we? You ever met anybody grumpy? <laughs> there are some people who are just grumpy, and they don't have any joy, and I think it's love is because they don't have the comforts around them. Somebody just took their stuff. They're unhappy for whatever reason. But I want to talk about today specifically the joy that comes not from the stuff we have, not from the brave, not from good food, not from a good bed, but the joy that is not really an emotion. It can be exhibited through emotion, but it's a joy that is more of a, just a, a state of being rather than emotion. It's a joy that it can only come from the Spirit of God dwelling fully in your life. Last week we talked about the first fruit, part of the fruit, which was love. The all-encompassing part of the fruit. Everything else falls under that category. It's completely selfless love to God and to others. And you realize that you can't do that without God doing that for you, in you. And you can't do that, you can't have joy the true joy we're going to talk about today unless God gives it to you. Now, I realize straight up here, um, some of you are sweeter by nature than others of, you, others of you are by grace. I understand that. Some of you are happier by nature than others are by grace. Uh, like I said last week, I'm glad some of you know Jesus because I wouldn't want to know you otherwise, you know. Uh, you know, and there's some people you like, I don't see, you know, if Je- they came to Jesus, the world couldn't handle their happiness. You know, it's uh, joy. Some of us have that proclivity to, to, to be happy, but I'm not just talking about that. I'm talking about a deep-seated joy. And we're going to be focused in my favorite of Paul's letters. That's the one he wrote to the Philippians. It's at the end of his career, his missionary career. Uh, and you'd figure by the, by the tone of this, that this was at the height of his career. 
Because in this four-chapter letter, uh, just four short chapters, you could read it while I'm preaching here. Uh, Knock it out and you'd be fine. Uh, It mentions joy or rejoicing 12 times in four chapters. So you think that he's sitting up in his retirement cottage, looking at his life and saying, okay, Philippians, I love you. Let me tell you how happy I am that you're doing great and how happy my life is now. You know, God has been so faithful to me. I've gotten everything I ever wished or desired for. I have no worries in the world. I have every comfort I could ever imagine. Uh, my kids, my grandkids, I got the RV in the back. We can go anytime we want to. Uh, life is great. Thank you, Philippians, for praying for me. You think that's what this letter is all about because it mentions joy rejoicing 12 times in four chapters. But this letter was actually written from prison. And it wasn't like the county lockup here. It wasn't even like the federal, uh, the, the state prison over there. It, is, it was literally a hole, like a manhole cover, in the floor. And the prisoners were squished in and lowered down in there. They had a hole for a toilet. And heaven knows how many people were stuck in that dungeon for how long. This was Paul's plight. There was water dripping, water everywhere, completely unsanitary. It smelled. There were chains. About as far from any comfort that would make us happy as could be. There was nothing that Paul experienced in his life physically at that point that would give him any kind of joy whatsoever. But yet, he experienced joy. That don't make sense, does it? It doesn't make any kind of sense at all. And if you, you read Paul's autobiography here in 2 Corinthians, you realize what kind of life he has lived, and he's still able to write this letter of joy. He says, I've been put in prison more often, been whipped uh, times without number, and faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. And you realize those were the, uh, the, the cats and nine tails with the, the whips that were split into nine pieces of leather at the end, and they had little leather, uh, bits of metal at the end. They basically made the people raw if you were whipped. And he would have been whipped with his, to, from his back down to his legs. Five times he experienced 39 of those lashes. That'll make you happy, won't it? If anybody had a reason to be grumpy, it was Paul. Three times I was beaten with rods, if the uh, whips weren't good enough. Once I was stoned, left for dead. Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and day adrift at sea. I've traveled on many long journeys. I've faced danger from rivers and from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities and in the deserts and on the seas. And I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but are not. I've worked hard and long and during many sleepless nights. I've been hungry and thirsty and have often gone without food. I've shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. But yet, after all that, he didn't write that for you to feel sorry for him. He wrote that to tell you that despite of everything he's experienced, he still experienced that three-letter word, joy. You have to understand from the get-go that this joy is not joy that comes from any external circumstance. 
we actually get a better understanding from joy, the, the Greek word of joy, the root of it, because it's, it's related to and from the same root as the same word as grace. It comes from the same root. We know what grace is, right? Grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Grace is having hospitality and love and, and patience poured out on us. You see, to have joy, you must have first received grace. Because if you've never received grace, then you know, don't know what it's like to be forgiven. You don't know what it's like to have the weight of what you deserve on you and being set free from that. Without grace, you can't experience joy. You see, joy comes from God. If you read through Philippians you realize that this is just a sampling of, of what Paul says in here. But he says to them in chapter 2, verse 17, always be full of joy in your circumstances. No, always be full of joy in your favorite sports team. Always be full of joy in, help me out, the Lord. And he, and he says, I will say it again, Rejoice. What's your ground and basis for joy? It's the relationship that you have from God. It's the relationship that comes from being forgiven. It's the relationship that comes from being connected with the vine. In John chapter 15, Jesus is telling his disciples, basically laying it out and says, you know, I'm the vine. I'm like, I'm the source here. And you're my branches. And what the Father's going to do, he's going to cut off any dead branches that aren't producing fruit. Just like a good gardener would do, he'd prune the, the dead stuff off. And if it's dead, he's going to throw it into the fire. It's worthless to him. But the, the, the stuff that's connected, the stuff that abides in him, the stuff that's connected to the source is going to produce good fruit. And he says at the end of that discourse, you've probably heard that part, I'm the vine, you're the branches. But at the end of there, he says this to his disciples. He makes a promise. He says, you will be filled with whose joy? My joy. I will give you my joy. And yes, your joy will overflow because of your abiding in me, your relationship in me. You know, there are times where I just don't think we understand how amazing the gift of salvation is. Have you thought about that lately? And I'm not just talking about the amazing benefits we have for it here, but the eternal benefits. There's a heaven and there's a hell. There's an eternity with God forever. There's an eternity completely separated from God and all the good things that he's ever created. That's hell. A complete place of complete, utter misery. And to realize that we were destined for that. But because of our relationship with Christ, we don't have to fear that anymore. We don't have to worry about that anymore. We can have life forever with Him. In a place where there is no more crying, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more sickness, no more pain, no more loved ones dying, no more cancer, no more broken relationships. No more anything that could ever begin to touch our joy. 
It's a place of absolute, unending joy. If that doesn't give you some joy, that you get to experience that, that that can be a reality for your life, then I'm wondering if you really, really grasp what you've been saved from. I'm going to paint the picture. Uh, have you ever been in a forsaken part of town? A place where the sidewalks aren't kept anymore, they actually crumbled? The signs are all graffiti, they've tumbled down. There is trash everywhere. There are windows that are broken, there are doors that are falling off hinges, there are people that are hanging out in corners looking at you and you're saying, Lord, please don't let me break down here. Because everything that I consider good is not in this place. Imagine for me for, with a, for a moment what life without anything of good would be. Anything good. That's eternity without God. We don't have to experience that. We can actually experience the exact opposite, an amazing, an amazing life forever with Him, with none of the bad ever in our life again. None of it. And when it's grounded in that kind of joy that understands exactly what we've been saved from, exactly what we've been able to experience because of His, his presence in our lives, you begin to understand how, for Paul, his joy was immune to the trials. Our joy is predicated on our circumstances so often. You can tell what kind of day it's going by the way you come home. If it's a good day, you're happy. If it's a bad day, don't touch him for a while. Our joy is predicated on what we've experienced. Listen to what Paul said in uh, Philippians 2 again. But I will rejoice even if I lose my life, pouring it out like a liquid offering to God, just like your faithful service is an offering to God. I'll rejoice even if I lose my life. How can that make bring him joy? You see, he'd experienced something absolutely amazing. At the end of, uh, there, he and Barnabas are in, in Antioch. Missionaries to Antioch, and they preached to the, the, the Jewish leaders there. And in the middle of the sermon, he says, basically, God has come to you, but God's also given this gift of salvation to the Gentiles, and that's who I'm going to preach to. And began to preach to him, and it made all the Jewish leaders very angry at him, so much so that they wanted that, that a mob ensued, and they wanted to, to take him out. They basically wanted to get him. And uh, right after you hear the, how the, the whole city was out to get him, you read this, this verse, Acts 13, 52. And the believers were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. You see, the, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit's presence in their life outweighed anything that they could experience in life. The Holy Spirit in their life gave them a taste of what heaven would be. The Holy Spirit in their life gave them a joy that wasn't predicated on anything that they were experiencing currently. Their joy was solely set on the prize. 
on what was to come one day. That was their source of joy. You know, during the funeral yesterday, there were tears yesterday, but I haven't seen that much joy at a funeral in a really long time. There was palpable joy there. And the only reason that there was joy there possibly was because Mrs. Spruill knew joy. And she knew that all the, the cancer that she'd experienced over the last seven years was just a drop in the bucket from what she will experience one day. And she also knew that her family, her, her kids, her grandkids were on the way to following her. That was joy for her. And that was the joy that was just coming up from that place. You see, you can have a joy that is immune to the trials that you have. But the other thing that really, I think, made their joy immune to trials was because it wasn't joy they had about themselves. What makes us happy is usually all about us. I'm happy because I feel good. I'm happy because I get what I want. I feel joy because it's my needs are met. I feel joy because I got that new toy or that new car or that new television. I feel joy because I, 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 I. But when you read Paul, his joy had nothing to do with him. His joy had everything to do with his relationship with God and his relationship to others. He experienced joy when others experienced joy. He experienced joy when others experienced salvation that he had experienced. He experienced joy when others were filled with the same joy that he had. He experienced joy from others. This is absolutely my favorite passage in Scripture, Philippians chapter 2. Uh, actually, we'll get to that in a second, but he, he starts off the whole letter with this. Every time I think of you, I give thanks to my God. Whenever I pray, I, I make my requests with, for you all with joy. When he sat down to pray and began to think about his brothers and sisters in, in Philippi and what God was doing in their lives, despite the fact that he was sitting in a dungeon getting dripped on with a toilet, open toilet that 12 other guys were using beside him. Despite the fact that he knew he probably would never get out of there alive. Despite the fact that everything that could possibly go wrong had gone wrong in his life. He thought of them with joy. If you have any encouragement, he says in chapter 2, from being united in Christ, if if you've received anything from your relationship with Christ, any comfort from His love, any common sharing in the Spirit, any tenderness and compassion, and He says, you know what is going to make me the most happy? What is going to complete my joy? What is going to fill me with joy? He says, make my joy complete. You'll make me so happy if you become like-minded, having the same love, being of one mind and spirit and one mind. Do nothing, then, out of selfish ambition and vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Not looking to your own interest, but each of you to the interest of others. He's saying, I receive my joy from seeing others experience Christ in their life and fullness. I get excited from seeing others come along the same journey I've walked. To seeing them understand that they don't have to spend eternity separated from God 
anymore. That they can have eternal fellowship with him. And that can begin right now. He experienced an amazing joy by seeing his brothers and sisters become united in that faith, in that spirit of Christ. He experienced joy not from him, but from others. But for us to really take our eyes off ourselves, it has to be a a Christ thing in us. We have to say, Lord, do the same thing in me that you were able to do. He finishes this. He says, in your relationships with one another, have the same mind that was in Christ Jesus. And he begins to, to quote an ancient hymn, probably the earliest hymn of all of Scripture, of the church, talking about how Christ emptied his power, poured out his power, became a slave, a slave that was obedient to death for us. Have that same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. I love the way the writer of the Hebrews kind of explains that. He says it was because of the joy awaiting him that he endured the cross disregarding its shame. Now, what was that joy? First of all, if you read right after that, it says it was, he was seated with the Father now. It's the joy of being reunited in physical space with God the Father. For Jesus, that was joy. But it was also the joy of knowing that what he was doing was not for himself. He was already with God forever. He got absolutely nothing out of the whole exchange. It cost him everything so that we could have everything. So in spite of all that, it was for the joy of being reunited with us. It was for the joy of experiencing complete unity with with the Father and face-to-face unity once again. It was for that joy that he endured the cross, disregarding its shame. My prayer is that you can have that kind of experience as well. A joy that comes from your relationship with God. A joy that isn't determined by your circumstances, that is immune to the trials in your life. A joy that genuinely comes to life when you see God at work in others. And that you want to work all the harder for God to work in their lives. But the reality is that there are joy killers out there. There are things that sap our joy, that come in and just overtake us. It's like, you know, I said I told you this a few weeks ago, it's like wisteria. And it's pretty one time a year, and that was two weeks ago, and then now it's just, it just is beginning to take over my yard again. And I have a tree in the backyard that I, that I saved from the wisteria. But, you know, it killed two, 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 a half of it that I'm going to have to chop off. The wisteria wrapped itself around, choked it. So that that doesn't produce anything anymore. It's dead. And Jesus said, the dead stuff, I'm just going to cut off and throw in the fire. It's not worth anything anymore. So what are the joy killers? Well, the first one is probably the most obvious to us. That's sin. Sin kills joy. Because what sin does, it interrupts the source of joy. 
it begins to block that relationship with you and God. There's something between you and him now. And so you don't, you're not connected to the vine fully anymore. There's something in the way. Sin. David sinned. David sinned in a big way. First of all, he took somebody else's wife for his own, got her pregnant, and then killed his husband. He killed her husband because of it. Sin, and then Nathan comes and says, we tell you a story about a rich man who had all the sheep in the world he could ever imagine, but he's throwing a party and he took the lone sheep of one guy for his own, for that meal, killed it, leaving that man with nothing. David becomes enraged and says, who was that man? Show me that man. I'll deal with him. And Nathan said, that was you. Your sin has separated you from God. And so in Psalm 51, Paul, oh, it's David's cry for forgiveness. He says this to God. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. He realized that the joy that, that came from that complete relationship between he and the Father was gone. It was disrupted. So he said, please restore that joy to me once again. The joy that can only come from you. Restore it. If you have unconfessed sin in your life, you're not going to have joy. You're not going to experience joy. We're also given the promise that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just and will forgive us our sins and purify us, will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He'll make us brand new. He'll restore the joy of our salvation. Sin will kill your joy. But you know, there's a more subtle killer. This is like a little insect that you can't see from the outside that just begins to bore into the tree. And before you know it, Leaves are beginning to fall. It's beginning to get brown. It's beginning to get tough instead of supple and, and bendable. It's beginning to die from the inside out. And that's what worry does to us. Worry kills your joy. Jesus said, will worrying add a single day to your life? What do you get from worrying? Ulcers, stress, hypertension, uh, anything. What else am I missing, Alan? What are all the, the stressors in life that come from worry? The, the bad. Gray hair, you know, it's uh, worry. What, what do you get from worry? Wrinkles. Wrinkles, there you go. Absolutely nothing good is accomplished through worry. Worry kills you. Worry saps the joy in your life. Paul is trying to wind down the letter, and he, he can't quite get there. He's already told him in the beginning of chapter 4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. He said, Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice in the Lord. And then, just a few verses later, he says, Always be full of joy in the Lord. And I'm going to say it again, rejoice! Understand the amazing gift you've been given in your relationship with God. That should give you Plenty of reason to rejoice, so rejoice in the Lord always. Always be full of that joy. And then, one verse later, verse 6, he says, So, you want to keep that joy? 
Don't worry about anything. But Paul, you didn't understand what I go through. Rejoice, don't worry about anything. But you don't understand what's on my head at work. Rejoice, don't worry about anything. But what about tomorrow? Rejoice, don't worry about anything. You're focusing on the wrong thing. Rejoice in your relationship in the Lord and quit worrying about the things of this world. Then what is he saying? To completely drop everything and live uh, a hippie existence? Just, Lord, feed me today. Lord, I don't need a house anymore. I don't need to make my house payment because I'm not going to worry about that anymore. I don't have to worry about my homework. You told me not to worry about it anymore. I don't have to worry about going to work because you said don't worry. But no, that's not what he's saying. He's saying don't let these worries drive you. Let your relationship with God drive you. Don't let the worries of life kill you Let the joy of your salvation give you life. Don't worry about anything. Instead, when you begin to start worrying, what do you need to do? Go back to the source of your joy. Quit worrying about it and go back to the source of your joy. Pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank Him for all He's done. Remember your relationship with Him. Remember how He's saved you. Remember how He's blessed you. Remember how He's transformed you. Remember how He's taken you from death to life. Remember that. And then, you'll experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. Stop worrying. Instead, start rejoicing in your relationship with God. Understand the amazing gift it is to you. Find the joy of your salvation. Quit letting sin and worry kill it. Rejoice. If you do that, His peace will guard your hearts from all the stuff. Now, the promise is not that His peace will guard our bodies, is it? It's not that His peace will guard our bank accounts. It's not that His peace will guard anything outside of our hearts. Because that can all be taken away. Ask Job. We can lose all that other stuff. But when we have His peace that guards our hearts... There's nothing that can take that joy. Nothing. Paul reminds us in Romans chapter 8 that there is nothing that can separate us from his love. Absolutely nothing. How's your joy? Is your joy blossoming from your relationship with God, from the spirit that is working inside you? Is it evident to people that you have a joy that, doesn't, that isn't affected by the trials in your life? You have the same kind of joy that I saw yesterday at a funeral? Or are you letting sin and worry steal it, kill it, and ultimately kill you? Joy. How you doing?
got wonderful news. That this just isn't a pie in the sky by and by promise. Paul wasn't saying, oh, you'll get to have joy one day. You can have joy even in the midst of the most awful circumstance you can imagine. If you study the word joy, you, you read the Old Testament first and look at every aspect of the joy and seem that they only experienced joy when it came to God saving them. They would sing as long as God saved them. As, God, as soon as God reached down, they said, we'll, we'll sing for joy then. But in the New Testament, there's a different nuance. There was joy despite the trial. There was joy to, despite the circumstance. There was joy because the New Testament church understood that this life was short, that this life was so fragile, but that the joy that they, they experienced from their relationship with God was the most precious gift they could ever have. I'm going to ask you just to bow your heads where you are right now. Some of you need to do some work in this moment. You've allowed the, the stealer of joy to, to wreck you. You're driving yourself to an early grave with your worry. You're running yourself out of relationship with God with sin. You haven't really appreciated the amazing gift that you've been given in salvation. You just take this as just, oh, thank you, God. Appreciate that. But my prayer for you right now is that you begin with a realization that your salvation is an absolute precious gift that cost the creator of the universe his life. And then I'm going to pray that you don't let sin and worry snatch it. Snatch it at all. I want to pray for you that the Holy Spirit fills you in such a way in this moment that you experience a joy that you haven't experienced in a long time. A joy that can't be explained just as the peace can't be explained. Let's pray together. Lord, as with David, we, we sing, restore to us the joy of our salvation. Lord, it's so easy to get depressed with the life that we have around us. It's so easy to get discouraged with the things that we lack or the things that we're experiencing. Lord, I pray that you would give me in this moment a a joy that transcends anything that I could face in life. And Lord, I realize that there still may be sorrow in my life. I still may experience sadness and grief and hurt. But the sorrow and sadness and grief and hurt can do nothing to the joy of my salvation. Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters right now that are dealing with with sin in their life, unconfessed sin. Lord, I pray that in this moment that they would just call out to you and confess their sin in their lives. that they would allow your Holy Spirit to so fill them that it pushes out that need to be led by themselves anymore. And they can be completely led by your Spirit. But Lord, I also pray for those who are enslaved by worry. Lord, free them from that. Free them from the bonds that make them a slave to the what if. What if? 
give them complete joy in you. Realizing that no matter what circumstance, your peace will guard their hearts. Lord, give us your joy. That's something we can't manufacture. It's something we can't well up hard enough inside of us to make it come true. It's something that just has to come from you. So Lord, in this moment, give us your joy. Lord, I thank you for your faithfulness. And may in the days to come, when we're tempted to follow our own path into sin, when we're tempted to, to worry about the trials of life again, help us to learn to rejoice, to not worry about anything, but instead pray about everything. Come to you once again, the source of our joy, and help us to experience your peace. Thank you, Lord, for today. Guide us and direct us as we go to our grow groups. And Lord, make our joy even greater as we experience life with others in those grow groups, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.